Who will solve the mysteries of time and space in between? It's the my favorite feminist time machine. <laughs> I love you so much. Why are you and your brother so good at jingles? Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name's Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey guys, you're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today, we're going to get educational with two educators of the world, one of which was also a concerto soprano, however you say that, and the other one was your favorite teacher because she really liked field trips. <gasps> okay, wait, are you doing Miss Frizzle? No, Is that her name for the Magic no, School Bus? No. Okay, you need to get out of here then because you just crushed the hopes of dreams of me and a few other listeners right now. <laughs> also, if you don't legitimately cover her for the next episode, we are all going to be so mad. <laughs> it's about time we have our first cartoon scientist educator on the podcast. Oh my God. Only if you do a cartoon artist. Okay, I'll look into it. <laughs> I'll look into cartoon artists. <laughs> all right you know what we are just this is not how i expected the episode to open up but i'm okay with this but here we are <laughs> i just honestly i want to skip this episode and just go on to the next cartoon episode if we could you want to just go to bed then no we're not gonna go to bed okay <laughs> all right well i will look into cartoon feminist artists to potentially cover next episode so that's gonna be a thing but for now i mean i don't i don't have a cartoon so who is this mysterious non-cartoon scientist educator that you're doing? Okay, so I have been all up in my head about my inability to geography. I haven't really given a lot of love to earth scientists. And on my end, earth artists. That is a thing, and I have not covered any of them. That is a thing. I don't <laughs> I have questions, but <laughs> for later. Bulldozers. <laughs> like, I, I cover a lot of, like... Animal scientists, medical people, chemists, physicists. I have covered two people, maybe. Let's see, a paleontologist. We had an oceanographer. It's been, it's been a sad road over here. So I thought I would dip into the world of geography, and I googled female geographers. And this name really jumped out at me. So I just decided, you know what? Fuck it. Let's do this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what? Should I? What? What? Now that I'm just like, fuck it. Who am I going to do for my podcast episode? You. I choose you. <laughs> throw up. Lazily throw a pokeball out. <laughs> Like slowly just rolls across the floor, but the floor is slightly uneven, so it starts to lean a little bit to the left. Both you and the Pokemon are watching it actually slowly like roll back towards you. Yeah, I guess it's embarrassing. I have to go die now. Excuse me. <laughs> but yeah, I uh, I choose you. Zonia Baber. Okay. I, I mean, I've never heard of her. Exactly. I never heard of her either. There was not much to hear about her, and I checked, you know, the usual sources. And nothing. Nothing much. Okay. So it was like last episode. The artist that I was I covered. Not a lot mm -hmm. of info on her either. Okay. I mean, I think that's why we... Because, like, most people have never heard of these people, and that's why they had, like, three paragraphs on Wikipedia and, like, a few paragraphs on, like like educational websites and then nothing on JSTOR. It's fine. It's fine. You know what? So I realized, so we have show notes for every episode and it includes mm -hmm. pictures of the the scientists and artists that we cover. Right. So I went to put those together last episode. There's actually no picture for the artists that I covered. What? Yeah. Like that's how little info there was on her. That's crazy. That was, yeah, sculptor Beulah Woodward. Oh, no pictures. Nothing on all of Google. Yeah, I actually don't know what she looks like. No idea. Oh my god. That's sad. Yeah. So what is what is her name again? So she was born Mary Arizona Baber. Oh, okay. She went by Zonia. 
So that is way cooler. Yeah, I, I'm already digging it. Uh, <laughs> I think that was a. I really liked her name, and I was like, you. <laughs> So, yeah, she was born August 24th, 1862 in Clark County, Illinois. Okay. Yeah, that's not what you expected with Zonia, but here we are. Yeah, no, and you said she was born in 1860s? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, she, all right. Like, her her first name is Mary, but she was like, you know what, my middle name is Arizona, so I'm just going to roll with that. I like it. Definitely a bold choice. You know, teenager <laughs> in the ni- 1870s. <laughs> I love it. And she had, like, a chill childhood. She went to elementary school. And then she could have technically just stopped after that because her hometown literally didn't offer anything beyond elementary school. Also, 1870s, like, expectations of women and girls. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know whose choice it was for her to leave, but she ended up moving in with her uncle in Paris, Illinois. So... Wiki and several other sources tried to tell me that it was 130 miles away from our hometown. I I Google mapped it. It's 20 miles. Maybe in the 19th century, it just felt like that distance to walk between the two towns. I was, yeah, I was about to say, like, I mean, even the article in Smithsonian Magazine wrote that it was 130 miles away, but I, maybe we don't actually know her hometown or I, I don't know. But by buggy, 20 miles by horse is about four to six hours, depending on weather. So, and like other, other variables. So I don't know. It still, it still sucked. Like it was still far away from where she grew up, her, her family and her friends, her hometown. Anyway, she finished high school. We're assuming she's 18 at this point. I didn't really get an age. Mm -hmm. There was no date for her high school graduation, but it's still like around 1880 in the United States. So women were expected to be housewives. And if they had to work, teaching was a perfectly acceptable occupation. So she attends what is called a normal school. And those are in quotes. Like a capital, like N for normal? Yep. I'm highly suspicious immediately. Okay. (laughs) Background on normal schools. They existed solely to train teachers in pedagogy and curriculum. And pedagogy is basically the science of, like, the science and art of teaching, really. They have since been adopted into larger universities, the normal schools have, as education programs as part of those universities, but they used to be their own standalone facilities that would prepare aspiring teachers for their careers. Uh. Yeah, the schools popped out a lot of female teachers and a lot of whom specialized in history and geography. Okay. Yeah, which I'm like, what? Okay, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) That's weird. She goes to Cook County Normal School. Literally, that's the name. And while she's there, she develops progressive thoughts and practices when it comes to education and geography. And we'll get into those in a second. Okay. But while she's developing those beliefs, she meets a Francis Waylard Parker. And he is the normal school's principal. Ooh. A professional relationship only developed. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. Uh-huh. He was also a progressive educator, and he liked that they shared the same viewpoints. I mean, what could pass for progressive viewpoints at that point in history? Very <laughs> low standards these days, but okay. I'm curious to learn about them. This is this this relationship is how she gets a job after she graduates. And it's basically at the normal school she went to. Okay. Yeah. And she becomes the, literally, she's teaching the teachers. <laughs> Talk about boss mode. I know. <laughs> but she becomes the head of the Department of uh, Geography at that school. Okay. Yeah. So she taught the interdependence of structural geography, history, and the natural sciences. And they focused on primarily geography, continental study, meteorology, mathematical geography. And she was very adamant about getting, like, history, math, and English all rolled in as well, as well as, like, drawing. Like, in her mind, these things were necessary for somebody to become a successful geographer. It's, it, like, obviously, like, understanding words and how they break down um, and understanding like math and measurements and how because mm-hmm. they like they're map making they're not just reading maps they're map making which also leans into the drawing so she's like she's like there's no 
There's no point of study in which you can slack when you're a geographer because it all comes and culminates into one point. Mm-hmm. Um, Literally one oh. point on your pencil. Like, exactly. As yeah. you're drafting everything out. Oh, and while she educated the aspiring educators, she also continued her education. <laughs> Drink every time you hear educator or educating. This entire episode. (laughs) She did this by taking geology and geography classes at the University of Chicago, and she earned Mm -hmm. her bachelor's in science in 1904. Oh, okay, cool. Exactly. That's exciting. Yeah. And while teaching and attending classes at the University of Chicago, she also... She also founded the Geographic Society of Chicago. Like, that whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It still exists. It has led expeditions and advocated for national park status of certain geographical treasures. Their Mm. website reads, quote, Together, our board and membership provide education opportunities for students and educators, assist in building geographic materials, collections in educational and cultural institutions, promote new and emerging technologies and problem solving, and much, much more. Unquote. That more part, though, especially regarding the advocacy of national park status, there was actually a moment where Zonia stood in front of 400 government officials on behalf of the sand dunes that are in Illinois mm-hmm. and said, quote, I can truthfully say that I should like to believe in the old Orthodox Hades for the people who will not save the dunes now for the people who are to come, unquote. So in other words, she told them all to go to hell if they weren't going to stand behind her. <laughs> like, this is the kind of woman she was. I like it. <laughs> but that's like the best way to tell somebody to go to hell. Yeah, when you've got God on your side. I know, I, I just think it's hilarious. Like most of <laughs> when you say like go to hell, you sound so like silly and flimsy now, but like, you know, the old Orthodox Hades will come for you. Like that <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely um a lot more dramatic and imaginary language. I am into it. I'm into the drama. <laughs> But now, you know, the sand dunes are protected land in the Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore, so. Oh, okay, well. You know, it worked. Quite a few generations she has (laughs) saved them for. So from 1901 to 1922, Faber worked as an associate professor and head of geography and geology in the Department of Education at the University of Chicago. At the same time, she was the principal of the University of Chicago Laboratory Schools. She is just... You said laboratory schools? Yeah. So there are labs involved in geography, and we're going to get into that right now. Ah, okay. So her teaching approach, it was hands-on, and that's what made it progressive. I'm just imagining, like, a rickety old airplane above, like, the woods and just, like, throwing out people. Like, just drop them in the middle of nowhere and be like, all right, well, if you can get back to school by next week, you pass. Good luck. She wasn't a wilderness teacher. <laughs> I have to like navigate, you know, the geography and be like, well, where am I? Where am I going? Where's my map that I should have done? Oh my god. Okay, so she's a different type of hands-on yeah, in mind. She, she's hands-on. So that was that's what was considered progressive because she understood that books were like they were priceless, but they were also sometimes stuffy, and then not everyone learns through reading. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people just connected better with experiences. And it was for this reason that she loved field trips and getting her classes out into the world. But, yeah, there's a picture of her, a profile, a side profile of her in Victorian garb with a giant-ass pickaxe over her shoulder out in the field. What? Yeah. And that's about the moment I really knew I wanted to cover her. <laughs> I like how we both had our special moments picking our people this episode. That the one you're like her. I choose a her. <laughs> my moment did not involve a pick sax, but that's still pretty fun. Oh my god, I'm gonna have to. I can't wait to hear about your moment. But you know, you can't go on a field trip every day, right? So she creates labs along with textbooks and field trips. She was so dedicated to getting alternative methods of learning into the classroom that she created and patented a desk design in 1896. It had, uh, like, a place to keep clay, a water well, and a pan for sand. They could create their miniature landscapes based off of real places and manipulate it and go from there. Oh, okay, that's quite curious. Yeah, and, like... Map making, that was a huge deal to her as well. So, rightfully so. She looked at maps as, 
little pictures of real places and real people, and she drove that point home. She gave the maps they studied context. She told her students to take the time and effort to turn the maps given to them into different kinds to make these places real to the students. Mm -hmm. And these are all educational tools still used today for geography, geology, and likewise sciences. Yeah, no, just being able to visualize all those different aspects of it makes a big Mm -hmm. impact in just understanding the material itself. Yeah, and I'm sure now it's like a CAD system on a like a computer, but still, mm-hmm. Zonia was one of those individuals who who pioneered that hands-on. Like, just because you're in a classroom doesn't mean that you can't have that in front of you. Mm-hmm. So she wasn't just teaching; she had a lot of other projects. So. Between 1899 and 1900, she chose to travel the world. Uh, as you do, turn of the century. Okay. As a woman. As a single woman. As a single woman. That's a big deal. All right. <laughs> I don't. I didn't get a lot of information on that, but she was bouncing around Asia, the Pacific Islands, Europe, and the Middle East. Yeah, that definitely suggests the upper middle class. Okay. Yeah, yeah. This actually allowed her to connect to the land and to the people, and she encouraged her students and other teachers to do the same. So um, one of her biggest things was having students write to other students from around the world to connect with them, to ask them about the places they live, and to understand that these places were not just made up, that these people depended on that land that they lived on and that they were studying. Mm -hmm. This is huge, of course, because she was insisting on the understanding and inclusion in the early 1900s of people who were considered other, so people of all races, creeds, and genders. Early 1900s. (laughs) I know, I know. Unfortunately, we are still having a problem understanding that today. I know. It's so crazy. But she, like, in 1925, she used her position as chairman of the Pan American Committee for the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. She was on there to investigate conditions in Haiti. There was a lot of, like, fuckery going on in Haiti. Okay, is she, by any chance, still investigating? Because last I checked, there were still accounts of fuckery going on, unfortunately. Well, she's dead, so, you know. Spoiler. By the end of it, she had, like, co-authored a report calling for the end of the U.S. presence there. Again, still relevant today. I I know. Uh, And then a year later, represented the women of Puerto Rico, seeking out the extension of suffrage to the women there. And she met with the legal secretary of the National Women's Party, Bernita Shelton Matthews, to discuss the inclusion of of that particular U.S. territory in who could vote and who couldn't. So women in Puerto Rico are like, yay, Sonia. Yeah. You can vote, but not if you live in Puerto Rico. Well, no, that's the point. They were extending to Puerto Rico. No, but as a Puerto Rican, you can only vote in American elections if you're on America, like if you're in a state. Wait, what? So with Puerto Rico status as an American territory, (gasps) they can't actively vote in federal elections because they're not considered part of the federal system even though they're a territory but because they're still american citizens if they were to move from like puerto rico to florida they can vote in florida yeah because they're americans yeah but that same person that same vote back in puerto rico suddenly doesn't count anymore there's only so much one woman can do i know i know it's a it's a it's a big issue but especially in the early 1900s Yes, and especially prior to the passage of the 19th Amendment. I mean, and that was just really white women. But these are big efforts that she's making. Yes. Uh, She also served on the executive committee for the Chicago branch of the NAACP. Cool. She was also the chair of the race relations committee of the Chicago Women's Club. And I think the next part is really important. Of course, it's still an issue today, just like everything else she's touched on. And I know you and I have both heard this, but you and I both have family members who do not understand the effects words have on individuals. Like, it's just a joke. Like, uh, um, why are you so sensitive? Get over it. That, that eye rolling. You want to you put your two cents into it, May? Yo, every, everyone has someone in their family like that, unfortunately. Yeah, it's been rough. But even, like, Zonia, <laughs> Zonia even went out of her way to propose the vetting of textbooks. She wanted to, not for, like, not, like, information sake, but she wanted to replace words and phrases that would lead to misunderstanding and war. And she wanted to change them to ones designed to promote respect and understanding of people that, that weren't like you. So, like, okay. like harmful words. They have an impact. Yeah, they do. And she understood that. She's like, well, you know, I don't want that in my, like, in my classroom. 
Mm-hmm. To her, these other places and the other people, they were neighbors deserving of respect. And she would let her politics come in through her teaching and her writing. And all of her journals, often speaking out about imperialism and the damage it's doing to the land, people and the culture that already existed in that space before, you know, white people. <laughs> okay, so I happen to be part of a group show that's happening right now at the Clay mm-hmm. Studio in Philadelphia. And right. they're doing a series of artist talks in connection with it and so i tuned in for one of them recently and they opened up with a land acknowledgement what and i was like that's great that's amazing it's a big deal because we first learned about land acknowledgement for an episode that i did about an australian artist and that's totally Mm -hmm. normal like an australian custom to acknowledge hey we're white folks (laughs) let's say like you know what native american territory i'm i'm technically on right now or bad (laughs) yep and so the clay studio they opened up one of their recent artist talks with it and i guess that's a new habit and i'm like that is great that's amazing also um what native american territory am i on because i gotta do some googling oh yeah i'll have to look into it because i was like oof, i i gotta get on top of that so i think it's great that these things that are just now starting to make waves here in the united states in 2020s like this woman was advocating over a hundred years ago (laughs) we're a little slow sometimes i i appreciate her effort obviously and sadly way before her time but yeah like she did a lot of good and i mean that's really all i've got on her i mean she she died january 10th 1956 in lansing michigan okay she didn't have a husband or kids and the only thing that i can make out from her death is that she was survived by a niece who was who she lived with at the time Mm -hmm. um her obituary doesn't say anything about cause of death so we're just gonna go ahead and chalk that to natural causes another mystery if we had a my favorite feminist time machine time machine we need a little jingle (laughs) at this point yes (laughs) i think we can make that happen who will solve the mysteries of time and space in between? It's the my favorite feminist time machine. <laughs> <laughs> I love you so much. Why are you and your brother so good at jingles? I don't know. I didn't realize that could be like a genetic predisposition, but it is. It is. <laughs> Alright, so that's unfortunate that there's not a lot of biographical detail known about your scientist but still good that we know like kind of the broader impact that she made within education and that's why i picked her because she was killing it killing it all right well that is something that your scientist and my artists have in common today that you have like little to no biographical information okay no that was last episode we were we went over this okay No, my woman, she was totally killing it too. Tell me more, tell me more. Yeah, you'll like her for the fact that she went and she got a degree. And then she's like, you know what? I'm going to go get another degree. Yeah, it's me. It sounds like someone I know. Milena. (laughs) (laughs) One day I will have a job that pays more than $20,000 a year. (laughs) Yeah, never mind the student loans it'll take to get to that point. Welcome Um... to America. I'm okay. I know. I know. So you are going to be proud of me. We're both stepping out of our comfort zones today. I am covering a performing artist. Yay! Yes. Yes. Golf clap for me. I know. Could I have done a sculptor? Yes. But I didn't. Megan, how many sculptors have you covered in the past five episodes? That's not important. I am a sculptor. I'm a little biased, okay? That's okay. just like you tend to lean towards medical professionals, Miss Medical Professional. <laughs> okay? All right, let's leave it at that. I also pull out physicists. Okay, yeah, and I, I've had a few painters in the mix. You're also a painter. That is not important right now. <laughs> <laughs> I've done abstract artists. All right. I'm not an abstract artist. That counts for something. But yeah, so I'm, I'm jumping into performing arts today. And I'm going into personally uncharted musical territory with educator and concert soprano Dorothy Maynor. It's so exciting. 
and a little terrifying because with the visual arts, like I know what's up, but with music, like <laughs> until <What's> today, <laughs> like I couldn't tell you what a soprano was. Really? It's on HBO. Oh God. Um. Yeah, I I knew that was a position in a choir, and that was it. Okay. High, low, middle, image. I don't know. So, I always I always hesitate covering someone outside of like my finer bubble. But when I was looking into Dorothy, you know, seeing what was out there on her, I came across a 1969 article that she wrote titled, Why Should Whitey Care About the Ghetto? I'm sorry, what? Yep, that was the title in an art education magazine. And I was like, yes, "Yes, I think I'm going to cover her today. (laughs) There's your moment. Yep, so that's what it was for me. Not a woman with a hatchet, but a woman with pickaxe. The rhetoric of a hatchet coming after white supremacy. <laughs> I was like, yes, this will be fun. <laughs> so, like I mentioned last episode, my person didn't really have a lot of info. Thankfully, that is not the case for today, which has been great. So, Dorothy, she was born 1910 in Norfolk, Virginia. So, father was a pastor of the local Methodist church, and mom was a homemaker. Okay. Dorothy had some siblings. I know she had an older sister. I've got no details on them. None. Yeah. Don't drink yet, guys. No, no. Not on my end. And like the few accounts of her childhood I came across, it suggests like a loving, supportive family. So it seems like she grew up in a close-knit community. And like I don't think she was exposed to segregation compared to some other people we've covered who grew up in that same era. I mean, Virginia in the 19... 1920s, roughly. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. it sounds like she grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly black. Mm. So I feel like uh, we've covered another artist who her family moved to D.C. just for that purpose because they knew they could live in an all-black community mm-hmm. and not – I mean, segregation was still very much a reality, but moving within an all-black community meant they didn't have to deal with white people. Wait, so she was she was black? Yeah, sorry, yeah. So Dorothy's African-American woman. Okay. Yes. So that's why, like – I think as a black kid growing up, she had she lived in a close knit black community in Norfolk, Virginia, and that's why okay she was shielded to an extent of some of the unfortunately more fucked up and dramatic racism of the country at the period at the time. Got you it. Know, Got it. It was a way of kind of she was in a bubble. It was. It was a way of you know the community yeah. insulating themselves from just the the hate from the shit. Yeah. From the just yeah. Yeah. No. About her childhood, in a 1939 interview with the New York Times, Dorothy said of growing up, quote, My sister played the piano. It was a rare day when we weren't singing in the house. It was just the sort of thing you might find in any home anywhere. I always sang in my father's church. So, I mean, her creativity, like, it was encouraged and then later supported at school. Very cool. Yeah. And Dorothy, like, she was enrolled at a local school for home economics. And Mm. there she was in, like, a a pre- like college program and then that same institution also offered bachelor's degree so she stayed on for that was it a normal school no it was not a normal school it was actually hampton institute which is now known as hampton university oh okay and it was formed after the civil war specifically designed to educate previous slaves african-americans so it is it's a world-renowned historically black research college very cool yes uh, and see, that's that's another aspect of her childhood. I was like, wow, that's a great resource to have. Yeah. Like a, a great opportunity. So she had that chance and she was there and she was accepted into the choir. And in the choir, she caught the attention of the music director. And on their encouraging, she decided to switch over from home ec into music. And then she banged the professor. Okay. No, not that I'm aware of. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. I'm just saying, you were like, ooh, with the professor over on my end. So I'm like, ooh, with the professor well, on your it, end. Okay, no, it totally sounded like you were going to segue and then and then they get married kind of relationship. No, no. Yeah. No. I was, I was expecting the, the principal to maybe be like, you know, the husband. No. But it was not to be. So I, I don't think that was to be on my end at all. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, one thing that was really awesome is that, like, when Dorothy was 19 in 1929, she and the choir group, they did a 40-city tour around Europe. I'm sorry, 40 cities? Yes. As a 19-year-old? Yeah, 1929. Holy shit. I know. Also, I mean, good timing before World War II. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm sure it might have been a little dicey more in the dramatic area of Europe. But I mean, that in itself, you're like, that's impressive. That's insane. The choir director, Robert Nathaniel Dett, like, he gave Dorothy the solo at the choir's performance at Carnegie Hall. Shut up. Yeah, I might not know much about music, but I know that's a big deal. Holy shit. So she's technically like in her undergraduate. Uh, and uh, uh. when the choir performed at Symphony Hall in Boston, uh-huh. solo, oh my God. at the music festival at the Philadelphia Academy of Music, she had the solo. Shut up. Yeah. yeah and okay, I my graduation ceremony it was at the Philadelphia Academy of Music and it is like fancy as fuck inside. Yeah, it is. That's cool. You were there. You saw. I did not see you graduate. No? I was outside. My brother got to see you graduate. All right. We can discuss the dynamics of that a little later. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. You know who was at my graduation? You. I was. <laughs> okay. Well, you also had it in a giant-ass auditorium because Temple is a giant university, and they have much larger facilities than my little school of, like, 2,000. You little baby school. <laughs> it is a respectable size art school, okay? Actually, my uh, one of my favorite instructors at the studio, the dance instructor, she got her degree in dance from University of the Arts. Yeah, so the dance program at University of the Arts is actually one of the strongest in the nation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, get, I, I, I see it every time she tells me to bend a certain <laughs> way and I can't. <laughs> Uh, fucking hell yeah you've got your arts to think so, um yeah so dorothy is doing all these amazing performances in school and it is no surprise that when she graduated from hampson institute in 1933 so she's about 23 years old uh-huh. she had a scholarship to go straight to the westminster choir college up in princeton new jersey shut up so she went right up there to be like all right let's do this and in two years she got another bachelor's degree what the fuck i know yeah in music and choral conducting i love her so much so by the time in 1935 when she's 25 like dorothy moves to new york city she had a really solid academic background and even then like she didn't stop learning like in new york city like she took private classes and she was also the lead for a church choir in brooklyn oh my god now this is real quick so for those of you who happen to catch episode 29 with gender-bending blues singer Gladys Bentley. I love her. Gladys Bentley and Dorothy are both in New York City at the same time right now. And they both became friends. And they're, they're both very different women. One is an unabashed, like, lesbian. Yeah. Who is yeah, a self-taught true. singer. <laughs> and meanwhile, Dorothy's over in Brooklyn, like, leading the church choir. <laughs> So they weren't friends. They, okay. they most likely were not. But it was like, wow, because I <laughs> I don't cover performers that often. And so the two that you did cover. Yeah, just recently. It's cool because they actually happen to exist like in the same region at the same time. I'm like, they would probably not be friends at all. Oh, my God. Who would win in a battle? Oh, Gladys. <laughs> Gladys. So she carried a very masculine personality and dressed a lot in like yeah. tuxes. And it, she had a very big presence. She was a tall, very kind of big woman. Meanwhile, Dorothy, not even five feet tall. <laughs> yeah. So and in my favorite feminist oh. smackdown, um, Gladys wins. So I just thought it was a fun contrast that I, I'd point out. But hey. Even though this is a fun what if scenario, we do not we do not condone women against women. We do not condone bringing other women down. Imaginary fighting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Bring your fellow women up, onward and upwards. Yeah. So in ve- in two very different ways, I mean they're both advocating for things that just both generally you know benefit black women in this country. Just two very different ways of doing it. But back for Dorothy. So her professional momentum really started gaining around 1939. She's 29. So she has an encounter with a conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Dorothy was at the Berkshire Festival at Tanglewood, Massachusetts, which apparently is like one of the music festivals like internationally. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. See, 
When I'm outside of my art bubble, I just have to Google everything because I'm like, is that important? Is that not important? Should I know what that is? Should I not? Welcome to my life. So here we are. Yes. So at this really fancy schmancy summer festival that we both now know about, Dorothy was introduced to Serge Korof Esky, the conductor of the... (laughs) I can't see your face right now, but just imagining it made me giggle. I'm sorry. What's his name? I'm going to say it over again. Like, if I just say it confidently and keep moving and never repeat his name ever again, no one will ever know that I mispronounced the Boston Symphonic Orchestra conductor from the 1930s. No one's going to DM me. No one ever DMs me. We'll be fine. Don't at me. Yeah, that. that. (laughs) All right. So friends introduced Dorothy to Serge. Karofisky, the conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And hearing her sing, he remarked that she was, quote, a musical revelation. The world must hear her. Yes. Serge was all about her. Yes. So not only did he introduce Dorothy to, like, wealthy patrons and music critics, but also was like, hey, will you perform and do recordings with my orchestra? Yes. And yes, that is exactly what she did. She was like, yes, please. She had it made. It really did. So it totally kicked things off. So like that same year, Dorothy had a major performance at the Town Hall in New York City, Uh which during the mid-1900s, that was a really prime performance space that a lot of really big names like came through. And people loved it. Like the New York Times critic like wrote that Dorothy, quote, Proved that she had virtually everything needed to be a great artist. The superb voice, one of the finest that the public can hear today, exceptional mm-hmm. musicianship, an accuracy of intonation, emotional intensity, and communicative power. Now, okay, was she mostly, was it mostly like religious, like pieces? You know what, it's, it's interesting that you ask because I didn't really think about that, but that does factor into it a bit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. I'll get to that in like just a moment. But so, yeah, so in these performances, she's doing some classical pieces. She's doing a little bit of religious content, and she has an overwhelming public support. And, like, Dorothy sings at Carnegie Hall, and then, like, the New York Philharmonic in 1940. What? And then, like, she's 30, and she's awarded the Town Hall Endowment Series Award. Why have I never heard of her? I mean... She's black. That's why. Um, yeah, so... Like, last episode, our artist, I think, was really intentionally left out of the history records because Mm -hmm. she was black. Yeah. Dorothy, not so much. We do know a lot more about her. I think she was a woman who was very aware of how to navigate the white power structure to get ahead. Uh And I think she was someone she put on or she approached it from a position of I will be exceptional. I will be nice. I will be polite. Essentially, I will give them nothing at all to say bad about me. Yeah. And I think that's how she navigated it. And she, she did have quite a bit of professional success. So that's shitty. That's how she had to play the game. Uh-huh. But also she acknowledged that was a technique for how she could personally get ahead. And, and she did. What's her, what's her last name? Maynor. M-A-Y-N-O-R. Hey, founder. She does not look African-American at all. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what? Okay. This is something I was going to comment on a little later. So... Yeah, if you guys Google her like Milana just did, bold black and white photos of her make her appear very light-skinned. And so while I was researching her, I was I was considering that and also kind of putting that comparison against, like, Gladys Bentley. Mm-hmm. That performance, she was a very dark-skinned woman. Yes, yeah. And so running in the back of my mind was the consideration of what aspect did, like, colorism play in her acceptance to things. Holy shit. Like, because she appears, and it's hard to tell because there are a lot of black and white images, you know, just how light or dark her skin tone was, did her lighter skin tone make it easier for her to be accepted into a white audience and white circles because or just she had lighter skin compared yeah, to other people? Yeah. If anything, she looks Hispanic, but, like... But then there's also the question with, like, the photographs you're, you're looking at specific to, like, the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, oh, were yeah. her photographs intentionally lightened i think so to make her publications and the press appearances make her seem more uh, appealing to a wider audience oh wow shit 
like intentionally photoshopping her image. Yeah. So I so I was yeah. thinking about that. And of all the kind of the research material that I came across like regarding her, no one was really talking about that at all. Yeah. And I mean, I definitely don't have enough of a standing to be able to like say one way or another with, you know, any historical knowledge because I don't, but I was wondering about that. Holy shit. Yeah. Because that's very much a reality, you know, that preference for light skin. And some of these, like, she definitely relaxed her hair in some of these. I, I feel like she was definitely aware of her persona in terms of catering to a majority white audience and a white power structure. Well, shit. Yeah. There you go. That explains it. Now, for her singing, mm-hmm. she was a very dynamic singer. Uh, like, dynamic in the content that she sang, but... Performance-wise, she was a soprano, which I had to Google because I'm not musically inclined. (laughs) And for those of you out there who are not musically inclined, a soprano means that she sang at, like, the highest note range, Mm -hmm. which is usually women and sometimes, like, young boys. Like, we'll have links to some of her recorded performances on our show notes so you guys can hear for yourself Mm. what that means. But in opera, sopranos, I mean, they're usually, like, the main female voices or the main female roles. Think uh, Fifth Element. Oh, (laughs) yes, that is a great way of putting it. (laughs) Yeah, in in normal operas, they're, they're like, queens or princesses or angels, but I love your comparison of, (laughs) like, intergalactic opera. (laughs) That was a way cooler comparison. (laughs) Now, I... I don't think Dorothy could sing that high. <laughs> well, that was definitely out of tune, so, you know. Yeah. And she she never landed those roles at all. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this goes back to the, the racial aspect we were just talking about. So, yeah. she, like, during her performance career, like, she had solos with major orchestras, but she never broke into opera. Oh, okay. There wasn't an American opera company that had a black singer until 1955 and they employed oh my god yeah it, it was a contemporary of dorothy's that was employed but i mean up to that then and even now like opera is still a very 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 white space yeah. i just think about her not landing those roles really can kind of go back to segregation yeah so some articles that i came across they mentioned that dorothy you know faced pushback because of her height because she was, like, not even five feet tall. And some accounts, they were like, you know, it was assumed that she couldn't have that type of strong stage presence because she was short. Um, Just her pictures alone. And her voice. Like, she yeah. could land those roles. Like, she was fully capable and qualified. <laughs> but I yeah. think saying that, oh, you're too short, was just, like, white speak of being like, yeah, no, you're black. No, like, <laughs> you're light skinned, but no. <laughs> yeah, I just think that was seg- that was racism. Yeah, yeah. I think we can attribute that one to racism pretty safely. Yeah. So yeah, so like Dorothy was very much capable of these high profile roles. She mm. had a very wide portfolio, and I think we can accredit that to just a really comprehensive academic training. So she could perform, you know, French and German pieces like Bach, and and then newer American compositions, and that old choir director from school, Robert Nathaniel Dett, he wrote compositions just for her. What? Mm -hmm. That's that's how you know. Yeah, about 10 or so. And, like, one aspect of her childhood that Dorothy carried onto the stage were spirituals. Mm, Yeah. Which, I mean, not very spiritual. I'm not religious at all. I didn't know what that was. I'm also not musically inclined, so that's like a two for two. Hmm. spirituals are there it's the precursor to gospel music Mm, okay they were it was very popular after the civil war prior to that spirituals were like the means of expression of enslaved people on plantations right and then they're more like somber i listened just to a few samples to get an understanding or just to get an idea right so i i can't necessarily speak to the to the mood of them I do know that it's it's like a call and response format. Oh, okay. And like a syncopated like rhythm. Okay. So it's very like very smooth, that kind of back and forth kind of flow between the singers. So I guess one's soprano and one's alto. Oh, I have no idea. I I said earlier, uncharted, Megan, musical territory, that's Oh yeah. I'm in a little rowboat right now. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going. I only got one oar. 
I'm, I'm going to get to the shore. So one thing that's notable about spirituals is that in terms of what's being sung, like there's double meaning because these songs, you know, formulated out of the needs of people like on plantations. Mm -hmm. And that became like a, a way to communicate in like a coded way. Oh, so there's one example I came across and, you know, you, the crow sings at midnight. Yes. Yeah, actually. Oh, what? So on plantations, like drums were banned because people knew that, you know, enslaved people can communicate to one another with drums. What? So, yeah. So spirituals took the place because it was realized that the tones of a drum could be mimicked in the song itself mm. and to serve the same purpose, but like just vocally. Okay. So. Okay. So that's just one level. Sopranos and bass. I know. You're my musical backup today. You're my heavy hitter. <laughs> I'm not much of a heavy hitter. <laughs> one of us was a choir and the other wasn't. So you're way more qualified than me. Uh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so not only was it how these things were sung that was important, but then like what was being sung? So for instance, I came across one song. You're like, oh, this sounds nice. It's about a baptism. And it's like, no, that's actually like a coded way to tell someone to get to the river to lose the scent of the dogs that the plantation master sent after them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. So they're they're very lyrically and structurally like rich songs that carry a lot of meaning. Holy in them. shit! <laughs> and, I mean, th- that was just you know one example that I came across for trying to understand like what spirituals are. Oh my god! So you know those are things that Dorothy like along with the traditional like French and German pieces like she's performing on stages like in opera houses mm, that's well that's intense well <laughs> hey this is intense so weirdly there were white reviewers complaining that Dorothy didn't sing spirituals like proper enough what yeah um another weird example of like you know, just that something we've come across in the course of, like, the podcast is where the colonizer is, like, trying to assert, like, the cultural traditions of a culture that, like, is not theirs. Yeah. They're like, no, it should be like this. No, no, it shouldn't. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> I'm from off. this community. I think I would fucking know. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, there was a 1994 essay by professor and author John Michael Spencer, and he wrote about that, you know, and about Dorothy's situation, you know, mm-hmm. saying that, quote, some white critics rebelled against her unwillingness to reflect her mark of slavery with so-called authentic renditions of the spirituals. Oh, fuck off. On the other hand, black audiences and concert reviewers seem to recognize in Maynard's performances of the spirituals the authentic qualities that distinguishes this music. Blacks probably saw in Maynard someone who knew she was raised the daughter of an African Methodist Episcopal minister and sang spirituals Sunday morning at her father's church and on Sunday afternoons. Yeah, because that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Like, so, in a very proper am- academic way, this guy was like, yeah, they all can fuck off. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> so, Dorothy, she, you know, she's blending this classical and then more traditional, like, folk background. Mm-hmm. And in her career, she had a lot of firsts. For her or just in general? Yeah, uh, in, in general. And, you know, for her, because she's the one doing them. So, Dorothy, she was the first African-American to perform in the concert hall at the Library of Congress. Ooh. That was in 1940 for the 75th anniversary of the passage of the 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery. Yes. (laughs) This is messed up. So, in 1948, when she was 38, she received special permission to perform at Constitution Hall in D.C. Special. That building is managed by the Daughters of the American Revolution. Oh, no. Which is no surprise. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know where this is going. Oh, no. They are a mostly white group. And a few years prior to Dorothy performing there, they had snubbed a contemporary of Dorothy's. Oh, God. Yeah. African-American singer uh, Marian Anderson. They were like, no, you can't sing here. You're black. Awkward. Yeah, and it was Marian Anderson who was the first black woman to be signed to an American opera house in 1955. Oh, okay. So they both got their whatever. Yes. Yeah. She was able to, you know, navigate that at the Constitution Hall. And then she was also the first African-American to perform special permission. Fuck off. 
I know, I know. I was reading about it. And I'm like, oh, God, these bitches, these sound really annoying. And I Google them. And I'm like, ugh, they sound annoying today. Yeah. No, they're they're pretty awful. But whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that made Dorothy the first African-American to perform at the Constitution Hall. And then she was the first African-American to perform at a presidential inauguration. What? Like, ever. Yeah. Like, she sang the Star Spangled Banner in 1935 yes. for Dwight D. Eisenhower. Yes! Yeah. She was fucking busy. So, from the time, like, Dorothy's career kicked off in the late 1930s, like, to her retirement in the 1960s, like, she sang for troops during World War II. She toured Europe again. And she was one of the top paid, like, performers. In the country. It's such a weird time to be alive. And yet... Yeah. All of that in and of itself. You're like, wow, she did a lot. And then she retired and she's like, cool, I'm going to do more. What? I know, right? You think, okay, we're almost at the end of the story. Nope, surprise, I've got two more paragraphs. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Your paragraphs are long, too. No, they're not. No, they're not. I promise. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, like, Dorothy does all of that. She retires. And within a year, she kicks up, like, a whole new, like, career as an educator. Oh, my. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Well, she retired early, so she was only in her 50s. Mm -hmm. And in the early 1950s, she had married a minister. And she retired. She got really involved at the church that he ran. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was offering music classes, like, here and there. And Dorothy's husband, he was super supportive. And he was like, hey, like, why don't you, like, officially have some space in the church to teach your classes? And Dorothy was like, yes. Yes, I will. And she founded a school that is still operating today. With alumni like Lenny Kravis. What? Yeah. Like, no big deal. (laughs) That's amazing. 1965. She was 55. Mm -hmm. She founded the Harlem School of the Arts. That's amazing. And initially, she was the entire school. Just her. She was the teacher. She was the admin. She was HR. <laughs> you know, she was she was the fundraising committee. The lunch lady. She was the board. She was everything. The cleaning lady. <laughs> everything. So the mission of the school, like, wasn't exactly to train, like, world-class performing artists. Because in the early days, the school was just for the performing arts. But the mission was, quote, that a lad who seemed to have little or no purpose realized that dreams come true. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What a wholesome motherfucking woman. I cannot. Yes. She she focused on kids. I mean, classes were open to everyone, but she really wanted to give kids the opportunity to be prepared to go outside of school and to have skill sets to fall back on. Oh, my God. And yeah, I think we talked about this, especially I think in Harlem, um, like after school programs are huge for individuals in underserved communities. No, no, that was exactly the case. And I know you've covered a scientist mm-hmm. who was really active, I think more, actually maybe about the same period mm-hmm. in time in yeah. Harlem. 1940s. Mammy Phipps Clark? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I know you've touched on those after-school Harlem programs with Mammy Phipps yeah. Clark and her husband. Phipps. Mammy Phipps. Ma- Phipps. That is exactly what Dorothy was doing, too. Right. So, I mean, she really wanted to provide the children of her community with a chance to see a better horizon, you know, with mm-hmm. the school acting as a pre-college program. And she said about it, quote, What I dream is of changing the image held by children. We've made them believe that everything beautiful is outside the community. We should like them to make beauty in our community. Oh, Yeah. Love yourself and love your culture and love your, like, your community. I, it's, it's important because, so, like, the Metropolitan Museum of Art did an art exhibit all about Harlem as, like, a neighborhood mm-hmm. and a community because... Yeah. I mean, that's where the Harlem Renaissance happened. Mm -hmm. Musically and in terms of writing and poetry and visual arts, like, there's a lot of rich history there. (laughs) People were pissed about the Met's quote-unquote art show because basically it was just photographic documentation of Harlem throughout the decades. They were pissed about that? Well, because they didn't actually involve anyone from the community to be involved in the show about the community. It was a oh, white guy no. who came in and was like, I'm going to do a show about Harlem. And so oh, from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Yeah. No. No. Yes. Yeah. And even art critics were like, yeah, that's not art. Like you just did like, that's just like a documentary show. Like you didn't even include artwork from anyone in Harlem. Like. 
No. So it's just that idea of like people in Harlem and other communities like just being commodified and consumed without any like real acknowledgement of Yeah. Without recognition and acknowledgement that though they were the people that put that work and effort in. Yes, but then at the same time they you know put that work and effort in in a situation where they're treated as second class citizens. Exactly. Or like how, you know, they don't know enough about their own kind of work, so they're told, you know, you're doing it wrong. Oh, as white people we know better. Also, yeah. I think you're not singing that spiritual properly, and I only learned about it like three minutes ago. I'm just saying. <laughs> All right. So, so yeah. So, with that kind of racial backdrop uh-huh. of Dorothy's community just being marginalized, I mean, that's what she's founding the school in. And late 60s, I mean, that was a very tumultuous period in American yeah. history. I mean, oh, with, man. Just everything that went on this past summer, I mean, that harkens back to a lot of the same protests that were happening then in terms of, like, racial inequality and, like, feminism. Yeah. You know, 1968 had the added layer of Dr. Martin Luther King being assassinated. You know. And the Vietnam War going on. Maybe that's why boomers are so fucked. I don't know. I'm not going to touch that. But um, I think compared to today, like, I think Dorothy's views of everything going on at that time, we would consider it moderate versus progressive today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's just trying to live her life and sing and, like, harbor positivity in her community. Yes. And for her, like, she had navigated these white power structures in a very specific way. So for her, mm-hmm. these more these radical people coming out. She didn't view that as the way to go about making change. Mm, yeah. Which, I mean, that's that was her view. But, you know, Dorothy did recognize, you know, the inequalities that were within her community because of it. And she tried to see what she could do about that through her work at the school. Mm. So over the years, the school grew, took on, you know, teachers. It expanded to the visual arts. And Dorothy managed to raise millions for a new building. Holy shit. So by the time that she retired from director of the school in 1979, the school was serving over 1,000 students in a 37,000-square-foot facility. So that was a really big change from the spare church room that she started with. Oh, my God. Yeah. The school is still going strong today. It still has a very um, robust kind of performance and visual arts program, and there's quite a few notable alumni to come through the program. That's amazing. Yeah. Amazing what one person can do. Yes. Yeah, I know. Because she was like, I'm retired. Guess what? I'm not. (laughs) Well, you can't. I don't know. I just like if you're that kind of woman, like sitting around doing nothing is not an option. You're right. You're right. Well, I say that. And then I get to the point where the last 20 years of her life, Dorothy spent in quiet retirement with her husband. (laughs) They were in Kennett Square outside of Philadelphia. They were in your neck of the woods. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And then in 1995, Dorothy Maynard, she passed away at the age of 85. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, separately, she made great accomplishments and impacts in, you know, Mm -hmm. singing and then her educational career. So between the two, it's really impressive, like, what she did with her drive and, you know, her her commitment to making things better. Right. Right. So going back to Dorothy's 1969 article why should whitey care about the ghetto so she was very clear-eyed about the issues of her day which mm. unfortunately are still the issues of today you know quote we are talking about the accumulated injustices and resentments the studied and often legalized insults of three centuries okay at this point four we are talking about an old sore that has been allowed to run and fester mm. So Dorothy saw a way to move past that systemic racism and oppression, writing, quote, we, we as in black Americans, mm-hmm. intend to keep knocking on the same door we have knocked on for the past 100 years. We are going to knock louder. We may break the door down, for that door is the way we intend to get on the inside. Not by the back door, not through the roof, not by burning the house down. Hmm. So Dorothy, she wanted in by the front door, and she wasn't willing to compromise on any other way to get the respect that, that I mean, she deserved. That she yeah. deserved. So I think that was the guiding principle of her life and it showed up, you know, and how she managed the school and everything. But, you know, with that, she really did help kind of pave the way for people after her. And, I mean, just with the school alone, I mean, she's impacted thousands and thousands of lives with that program. That's amazing. Yeah. So that is Dorothy Manor. Oh, man. She's my my favorite feminist for today. <laughs> That's good. You did say you were going to have an uplifting story this time around. And this particular like episode is pretty uplifting because it's 
don't know. Let's we're gonna dedicate it to our teachers. Because I think they don't get enough love and support. Oh my god, especially now just with the the pandemic and trying to teach remotely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> it's all like a whole new hurdle. It's so stressful. I know, I know. I just I recently reached out to an old professor just to update him on, on some stuff and um he is someone he, so he's in his eighties and <laughs> He's been teaching pottery online to students. What? Yeah. And I just wanted to check in and be like, hey, Jim, how you doing? Because I'm sure this shit is tough for him. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. So, yeah, things have been touched tough for our teachers. And, um, mm. yeah, we don't even have children. And we're saying that. No, no, no. But we still respect educators in this country and around yes. the world and thank you for persevering and being awesome yeah and making such a big impact on people mm-hmm. yeah you never know how things might end up you know years after you've taught someone the impact that you might have so definitely right. appreciate that so thank you guys yeah so as always if you guys have made it this far we super appreciate it you guys are pretty awesome and milena if people want to see images of the people we've covered today where where can they go where can they check that out we have a website, myfavoritefeminists.com. We have an Instagram and Facebook, both under My Favorite Feminists. Our Twitter is at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. Our email is info at myfavoritefeminists.com. You can find us on any place, any major podcast platform. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher. It takes two seconds, please. Like, rate subscribe and in any comment section or uh in an email or anything like that give us give us a shout out let us know who your favorite teacher was the one that had the most impact on you okay this is kind of kind of fucked up what no so a one teacher that had an impact on me i was in the third grade miss miss powell's class and oh i had a mrs powell she was my second grade teacher oh I wonder if there's just, like, a whole army of them out there. <laughs> Teachers, they just get assigned, like, a set of, like, ten last names. You're a Smith, you're an Anderson, you're a Powell. <laughs> Martin, I had a Martin. No, so Miss Powell was influential and she – this is kind of sad. She was the first teacher that kind of gave me the, the idea that, oh, maybe I didn't have a family life like everyone else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was very sweet. But it was the oh kind of sweet God. where, like, as a little kid, you're like, oh, that means oh. something's wrong. Oh, oh no. Uh-oh. Oh, no. <laughs> to be fair, that was also the year that my mom was diagnosed with cancer. So. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, and she knew that. I, so I think she just knew to keep an extra eye out on me, like, just to make sure everything was okay. But but that just Damn. gave me, like, this weird self-consciousness that as a kid, like, I don't, I don't know if you've ever had a moment where it, that just hits you. Like, you're just. All of a sudden, you're like, you weren't self-conscious, and now you are. So Yeah, I was... I mean, it was, it was, was good, though. She kept a watchful... It was very, it was sweet. She was a sweet teacher. She just checked in on you every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, what about for you? I mean, um, I, I had, a, like, a handful of English teachers that really helped me throughout my life. So, um, Mrs. Schimmel was the one who got me to start writing, and Mrs. Demko was the one who taught me to, like question everything you know and she was actually in the private school in the in the in the christian private school the subversive one who's like i'm gonna give you guys greek mythology and we're gonna bring down the christian establishment exactly (laughs) yeah no she was great don't forget your homework for next class boys and girls And then, of course, Mrs. Burnett in high school. Yes, yes. Both had her. She was very sweet. She is a very sweet teacher. Yeah, she was my teacher for several years in a row, actually, for for journalism and for English. And she really shaped a lot of like. I feel like I got a lot of my sarcasm from her too. Honestly, I'm being (laughs) really. Oh, okay. You, I mean, like you didn't have her as much as I did, but she had like she had like this bite come out of her every time she like. Yeah, and she like made me laugh a lot. So she, I don't know, she just always was always really there and always really cared. And I mean, even now, like she'll like tag me on Facebook or like reach out and. Okay, well, guess who you've got to tag when this episode is live and be like Miss Burnett on her Facebook wall. Be like, I might have accidentally dedicated this whole episode to you, Miss Burnett. <laughs> no, also, I'm really still salty. True. Why did you give me that B minus that one time? 
Can we retroactively do something about that? Because I did just dedicate a whole podcast to you. Miss Redette, come on. Let's work on those transcripts. Retroactively gave me several A's over a decade later. I know you've got that pool in the administration. How many years you've been working in that county? She's actually the one that brought us up to Philly. I was in Philadelphia the first time in my life um, because of her and because of the journalism trip that we took. Yeah. And that she's honestly the reason I fell in love with this city. So, you know. Thanks, Mrs. Burnett, for being awesome. Also, thanks, yeah. Mrs. Burnett. I enjoyed your classes. Yeah. Yeah, we were both her her students. All right. Well, if all the other listeners have tuned out, we're just really here for Miss Burnett at this point. So, <laughs> uh, until next time, guys. We'll see you then. Bye. <laughs> Time machine? Jesus, you can't solve everything with the time machine. I think you can. I think you can. (laughs) I couldn't even get that sentence out and sound convincing because that's (laughs) you can. Or at least make things a lot more interesting. Insert time machine jingle here. It's one of those things where you're like, well, if I'm here in the time machine, obviously I did something right. So let's just keep doing what I was going to do anyway. Because in theory, (laughs) I've already done it. I've already done the thing. Yeah. So obviously it worked out fine. I'm still here. Yeah, I don't think we're qualified to travel in time just yet.